perspective thrill me. Scream! Scream for your lives! You're going out there to destroy them, right? Not to study, not to bring back. I've seen things you people wouldn't believe. Oh, I know this creature of yours. When the dragon gets this old, it knows nothing but pain. Scientists are saying the future is going to be far more futuristic than they originally predicted. Welcome to Care Boy, gentlemen. Open the pod bay doors, Hal. I'm sorry, Dave. I'm afraid I can't do that. So, celestial event. That works. You really shook the pillars of heaven, didn't you? What's the boogeyman? As a matter of fact, it was. Hello, welcome back to the Phantom Galaxy Podcast. I'm your host, Nathan Bartlebaugh, and welcome again to a world where science fiction, fantasy, and horror collide. Tonight I have a very special guest. I'm very excited to have him here. It's, uh, it's another visitor from Canada, but it's not Bill Van Bagel this time. I'm joined tonight by Dave Roy. Uh, he is the host of the, uh, also a brand new podcast, The Great Fright North, where he talks Canadian horror, uh, and he has some great, great content. He's about three episodes up right now. They're full of information. They're really interesting, and they're about movies that are sometimes a little bit uh, outside the beaten path. Uh, lots of fun. There was a recent one about Prom Night I really enjoyed, but I'm going to go ahead and let Dave introduce himself. All right. Hi. Thanks, Nathan. Uh, yeah, I'm Dave Roy, and my podcast is the great fright north and i wanted to spotlight uh, as much canadian content as i could but i do love horror from around the world so i'm i'm kind of flipping it every second episode will be about a canadian movie and then i'll throw in one of my favorites from wherever or whenever uh i'm uh, really enjoying it so far although it is just me i'm solo casting right now and uh if i could just mention also one other thing I do also host a radio show up here in London every second Wednesday at midnight called Cinemagic, and we spin soundtracks from film, television, and Broadway. That is awesome. And and Dave, let me ask, because I remember you had previously been on Land of the Creeps podcast at one point, and I remember you'd mentioned this, this show then. Is that a show that we can find online somewhere? Um, unfortunately you'd have to listen live. It's, it's a volunteer radio station. It's college radio and their funding is not great. So they don't have an archive, unfortunately. I love college radio. I miss college radio. It's a lot of fun. I really, I really, really like it. They, uh, you know, they let you kind of be all on your own program, whatever you like, as long as you follow the, uh, we have up here, the CRTC It's probably a lot like your FCC rules. Yeah, yeah. I mean, and back in the day, like back in the primordial uh, shadows of 1998 or 99, oh, yeah. uh, I was at a, a local college, uh, community college, and co-hosted a show like that. It was so much fun. You know, you get the different soundtracks and put them on. And I don't know how many people were listening to the Gladiator soundtrack at 1130 <laughs> at night. <laughs> I know. that It's a niche show, and they, they put me on at midnight. So I'm sure I have a dedicated half dozen listeners or so, but... If you happen to be up on the East Coast uh, at midnight, you can listen. It would be radiowestern.ca slash listen live. 
I am up a lot of times like that, and I'm... All right, then. (laughs) (laughs) Not always intentionally, but I... um... And then the the summer, my trick is making sure my kids don't get back up at that that time. I have an eight-year-old who's learning that he likes to wake up in the middle of the night and try to sneak sneak some switch or something like that. It's so much fun to to do that when you're that age, right? Once I I go to bed now, I just go to bed. Yeah, exactly right. And uh, I lay down, and if I'm I'm even anywhere near close to, you know, about halfway to the floor, I'm probably going to sleep. So uh, it's really, really excited to have you here. And I was planning to have you come on um, very soon anyway to, to talk movies and talk science fiction and horror. And um, I, I get the feeling, too, listen to the, the podcast you've had out, that you're, uh, you're into a lot of different genres and a lot of different uh, elements of of those genres, not just movies, but books and games and things like that. Oh, yeah, definitely. Um, but, you know, sadly this week, at the beginning of this week, we had the passing of a really big film composer and Ennio Morricone. And I, you know, I was trying to think, I was like, I really want to do something. And I, knowing that you had the radio show and knowing that you, um, that you, you kind of, your niche a little bit is uh, film soundtracks, I really wanted to bring you on and talk about that. So, that's one of the big things we'll be discussing tonight. Before we do that, though, kind of a weird serendipitous uh, situation happened where, uh, Dave, last week you went to the drive-in. And did you take the whole family to go to the drive-in? Well, the uh, it's really just uh, the wife and I and some fur babies. That's pets okay. up here in Canada. So, yeah, we couldn't bring them. One of the reasons we do love the drive-in, we go to our local one quite often in the summer, is because you can bring the dog, but with the you know with COVID and social distancing, it was oh yeah he'd just be locked in the car all night. You can't bring a lawn chair or anything. So, but you went to see Jurassic Park and Jaws, and that was the same thing that the drive-in down near us. We're here in Baltimore, Maryland, and we have a place near us called the Benji's Drive-In, which apparent which was boasting the biggest you know uh, drive-in screen in the U.S. But. Uh, we went too. We went Saturday night. I don't know what night you went. Yeah, I thought it would be fun to talk about that because, quite honestly, this was the first time I ever took my children to the drive-in, and it's the first time that I have been to the drive-in in years. It's several years, even though we have one that's relatively close to us. I haven't uh, been in a bit, and uh, but this was a lot of fun. I really, I really enjoyed it. And drive-ins are basically what we have right now. You know, as far as if you want a anything approaching a theatrical experience and you don't have a projector or something like that in your house oh yeah they're uh it's the way to go right now as a matter of fact a couple of the walmarts here in town have decided that they're going to project uh films in their part in their parking lot and, and charge you know basically recreate the driving experience because it kind of is the only way you can get together right now yeah, I, I I don't want to comment on that for a minute because that's a yeah I saw that last week and somebody was commenting on it saying you know if you can if you've got a local drive-in go to the local drive-in don't go to the Walmart drive-in I appreciate <laughs> what they're doing there but I was thinking that in my head I'm like trying to imagine what the Walmart drive-in experience would be like and uh, have you ever seen that Brian Trenchard Smith movie the Dead End Drive-in Oh yes, years kind of like ago. A post- yeah, it's not really all that much about a drive-in, but there's that kind of post-apocalyptic world, and the drive-in is almost like something from Mad Max Beyond Thunderdome. I pretty much 
have the idea that a Walmart drive-in experience would be like the opening of that film. Well, yeah, and I mean, I, I'm not sure where you live, but all the Walmarts are right in the city. I mean, there's traffic driving by. The beauty of the drive-in, the Mustang out here, is it's still kind of out of town. It's in the dark. There, you know, there's not a ton of traffic going by or someone liable to walk by. And, you know, it, it's... Uh, Right, with a pet tiger on a chain. Yeah, yeah. As people at Walmart are wont to do sometimes. I, I did think it was pretty awesome, though. I was asking you on an online chat there if it was a similar, like if it was the same chain, because I did think that was neat how we got to see basically the same movies just flipped around. Well, I think they might be packaged, and I'm not sure how this all works because I don't know enough about the distribution within within the drive-in uh, scenario. But it seems like a lot of theaters are doing this, and I had just finished listening to an episode, I think, of of horror movie podcast, and one of them was reading something off of one of the listeners who had said, oh, I just went to the drive-in and saw Jurassic Park and Jaws. Oh, great. And uh, someone else had posted a couple weeks back, our local drive-in did E.T. and Back to the Future together. And wow. someone had said, too, oh, yeah, I'm watching E.T. and Back to the Future. So it's, it's kind of fun to see that synergy and honestly, someone was asking me, I think it was my father-in-law, I was like, well, won't it be nice, Nathan, when they start showing new movies at the drive-in again, and you take the kids to those? I said, well, you know, the funny part is probably one of the reasons of the past couple of years I didn't necessarily take the kids to the drive-in was because they were just showing the movies that are in the multiplex. And for right. my kids who are a bit younger, you know, the movie doesn't start until late 30. They're probably asleep even before the end of the movie. Now, my son was charged up on the freezy pops and everything like that, and so he was up all the way until about 1.30. I was the one that was finally like, guys, we got to pack it in. I have to drive us 15 minutes home, but I still have to drive us. <laughs> but, um, man, it was really cool because I had never seen... My wife, I think her first drive-in experience was Jurassic Park back in 1993. So she had seen it that way. I had never seen either of these movies at the drive-in. It was really cool. I really enjoyed it. And uh, Jurassic Park was a lot of fun too. What? How? What did you? What was your experience like watching both of those? Had you ever seen them in that venue before? Well, uh, not at the drive-in. No, I, honestly, I hadn't seen Jaws on the big screen at all. It came out the year I was born. Uh, Jurassic Park, I have seen an embarrassing amount of times on the big screen. I probably saw that movie like twelve times when it came out. But uh, the the experience at the drive-in was amazing. I like. Again, everybody's in the same experience. We're all locked up in our chud holes. It was, one, so nice to get out, see, and be around people. Uh, it, you know, it's social distancing, so it's basically half capacity. You've got way more space between the cars, and people are, you know, being very careful and, and distanced at the concession stand. But But you could hear people, and it was a communal experience. And what I noticed is... How many people was their first time seeing Jaws, uh, the, the young people? There, there was uh, some teenagers in a truck beside us and, and kids all around. And you could hear, I could hear the reactions. It's really hot up here. Everybody's windows open. And like you say, your, your hatch is open or you're sitting in the back of the truck or pickup truck. People were reacting to that movie like, like it, it, proving the classic that it is, you know, the... Right, like it's the first summer it came out. Oh, yeah. Like my, my wife, who hadn't seen it in 15 or so years, uh, when that movie opens, the, the first kill, the girl swimming, she was squeezing my hand. And when it was over, she just couldn't believe how, how brutal and shocking that opening scene was and the rest of the movie, too. But like it, it just blew her away. And the kids around us were, you know, gasping and screaming and giggling and um, just loving it. You could feel the energy. People, because. 
you know, it's a seventies movie. So there are times after the action, there's, there's, there's some lull and some talking. And during those periods where you can hear the cars around, people are maybe not paying too much attention, but as soon as it amps up again or an action scene or horror starts happening, the drive-in is silent. Everybody's paying attention and you're getting those reactions that, that a classic movie pulls out of people. It was just great. And you're right. Like in that scenario, it reminds you why this, and I don't throw the term masterpiece out, you know, willy nilly here or there, even for movies that I love, but it is, it really is a masterpiece. You're right. My, my daughter who had, you know, eight thirty. She's kind of one when she's ready to go to bed, she's ready to go to bed. So about the movie's really up and kicking at around like nine forty, and she's getting to where she's sleepy, and then that head comes out of the boat <laughs> and she just jumps and gets startled. What's interesting about Jaws is how much it does grab you. And I think even in some in you mentioned the down scene, so to speak, the talking scenes, there's even though a lot of it is You've got Brody and Hooper talking over dinner and stuff like that. These scenes are still shot through with a lot of energy and a lot of, like, character drama and things that keep you interested. You know, my son uh, really enjoyed the scene where the wife is, you know, berating Brody for telling the kid to get out of the boat. And then she looks at the picture of the shark. And she's like, get out of the boat now! You know, those little moments that I kind of feel bigger summer movies now... They eschew those moments. They don't handle them. You know, there's even a a moment when I think it's uh, Hooper gets there for the first time and he's walking down the dock and he's throwing uh, lines back and forth with the guys that are in the boat. And he and there's like a a, a fisherman or something who walks out and just kind of stares at him. You know, it's a real weird kind of non sequitur scene where you're like, I spent they spent about forty seconds on that, but what does it have to do with anything? But it it, it creates a mood and an ambiance that I think newer movies want to rush by. Oh, I was, I know the scene you mean. Yeah. Like it, it doesn't, it today, uh, you know, the, the studio who has a lot to do, a movie is not just made by a director anymore. The, the, the whole system is different. That's maybe a bit of the issue, but, uh, there just isn't time for that in a movie today. You know, we don't, we don't need that reaction or, or that introduction. We can do it quicker. Right. You Or roll it into a different scene and, and, and introduce and do action at the same time or. It makes everything perfunctory. It makes everything sort of mechanical sometimes. Because you watch Brody talk to all those people on the beach. You know, the old man putting his sunscreen on who's talking to Brody and the guy who's coming in and asking him, you know, hey, can you check this thing out for me? All of that stuff is an aside. It doesn't necessarily help us with the plot at all. It just creates the ambience of this is a normal summer day. His mind's preoccupied because he has this concept of the threat. But it hasn't been made real yet, you know, or the scene when the the grieving mother comes up. The movie stops still for that scene, but it's so important. Yeah. They, um, and then the, 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 the Quint's speech on the boat about the Indianapolis, that, man, that is some great acting. Apparently some of that is ad-libbed, too. Uh, man. Some of that looks like alcohol, too. <laughs> yeah. He, he's able to... He's able to crystallize that moment, and he kind of drives all those like emotions. Uh, yeah, and it's such a great scene, and it's great for all the interaction. You know, and again, it allows that scene to breathe. You have those two guys talking back and forth, and I like the interaction. You know, there's a little bit of uh, a little bit more than a little bit. There's a decent amount of tension between Hooper and Quint when they first get on the boat together. You know, but by the time you get to that scene, even before they get to the speech, he, they've they've communicated. Here's two guys. 
They're they're loosened up by alcohol. Brody's over here. He's still cognizant about the shark. But these guys have broken through the barrier and they're starting to become buddies. And, you know, a lot of that stuff is happening right in front of you. What I was curious about, because I love both Jaws and Jurassic Park. And our theater, it's funny, it showed Jaws first before Jurassic Park. My wife was like, why are they doing that? And I said, well, the irony is that Jaws is the is the gentler rated movie today today it is now watching those movies back to back even with the special effects even with the dinosaurs i still think jaws is way more intense than jurassic park is uh but jurassic park is the pg-13 you know jaws as far as i know they they never adjusted the rating so it's still a pg film it wouldn't (laughs) be today but you know the meg is pg-13 but jaws is pg meg is pg-13 it is yeah wow (laughs) yes but did you, I think, particularly seeing Jaws first, I was able to notice some of those things, even those criticisms we were just making about how um, certain things just feel uh, perfunctory or they feel like the, you know, the, the script feels a little mechanical. I could see some of that stuff in Jurassic Park where it didn't feel as natural, it didn't feel as organic, and it felt a lot more like watching kind of just dialogue that had to take place jammed in between big set pieces. And I never felt that way watching Jaws. Oh wow! Yeah, we we watched Jurassic Park first, so I kind of just got into it. And I actually I missed the first twenty minutes being in line at the concession, so it was uh, <laughs> it it wasn't a full viewing for me. Yeah, and we left uh, we left towards the end about the time the Raptors are out just because we were tired. And I don't and not that I don't love it because I do think it's a great movie. But what I'm thinking of particularly, I guess in Jurassic Park. Spielberg knows that he has to get a certain amount of information that was jammed into Crichton's novel. Those scenes where we have the Mr. D&E and the ride, I appreciate that, oh, he basically has found a way for the audience to just sit on this whole ride and listen to this educational video without it completely shutting the movie down, which which is impressive. But you watch those things, and, and I love Sam Neill, and I love Jeff Goldblum, and I love Laura Dern, and I grew up with this movie, but I'm watching them, and like again, when you look at it in terms of Jaws, you're like, I can see how this one is mo- feels a little bit more like the manufactured thrill ride. Now, once those dinosaurs come out, I mean, holy crap, it really doesn't matter, right? <laughs> no, absolutely. And I guess I, I get I sort of feel what you're saying because Jaws clipped by. It it just flew by where Jurassic Park does have, you know, long exposi- exposition scenes and then action. It does feel like the, you know, it's, I'm sure it's a little more than two and a half hours or or a little less than two and a half hours, but it feels like a longer movie. It's 45 years old, Jaws, and we're still talking about it like this. So it must be pretty well made. Right. And then I think too, the thing is there aren't a lot of thriller movies or creature features that are half as well made as Jaws. So to say that Jurassic Park is not exactly as good as Jaws, you know, is not, is not really, um putting it down but man that dinosaur scene is still so impressive and my son stops and he's like like these special effects are so good dad and we had just finished watching the hobbit trilogy. we watched lord oh, of the yeah. rings first but we watched the hobbit trilogy and my son is constantly saying stuff like looks just like a video game dad that looks like a video game and i'm like yeah well particularly his experience is that movies are now so or video games are so sophisticated that yeah half of his video games look better than the movies he's watching and so it was funny to see him so react to him, be like, these special effects are so good. And you point out that, what, that has a handful. I remember hearing the number of special effects shots in that movie are really low. CGI shots, I should say, compared to what's in something else. But man, on that, we were in the back of the car by the time the dinosaur attack happens with the T-Rex. And man, that's that's pretty intense. Oh, yeah. 
and and you're right the the effects do hold especially when you know a lot of well not a lot i i, I watch some of it but you know you get the sci-fi movies or the asylum movies or even you know even a decent budget uh independent horror movie how is it that those 1994 cgi dinosaurs are almost flawless and like you know you can you can see that the edges on or you mentioned the 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 hobbit you're talking about probably the the white orc that looks like a video game i would argue even jurassic world and some of the i enjoyed those movies but i would argue that even though the dinosaurs move more fluidly that they don't look better than the ones in this movie. You know, a lot of the CGI in uh, in the first Jurassic Park is enhancing Stan Winston's creature effects. I don't know if that makes a difference. Like they're, you know, they're they're using it with practical effects. It's not just the CGI that might have something to do with it. I think that that is it, particularly for this movie. Uh, and this is one we go talking about soundtracks and stuff. We we have the Baltimore Symphony Orchestra down near us, and we went to their. Um, their symphony hall a couple years back and took the kids and they did Jurassic Park with a full uh, instrumental accompaniment and they did E.T. that way too and we took uh, the kids to see that so you get to watch the movie while they play as well yes so the movie's up on screen and the music is there and that was really cool and that's when you really realize how much John Williams score amplifies these movies oh yeah and um, funny story my daughter again fell asleep with ET, but she fell asleep in such a way, and then she didn't wake up till we got back home the next morning. I asked her about ET, and she's like, "I really liked it, Dad. It was so sad. He just died." And I realized, <laughs> I realized that she didn't wake up in oh, time no. to see the conclusion. So I was like, "Hold still, you know, you're eating breakfast, <laughs> but let me turn this off for you right now because I can't have you go a minute longer." <laughs> Oh, that's yeah. That's a terrible story. It's like the parents but, who start. Um, uh, was it that Finding Nemo? They start at fifteen minutes in for their kids, so that they don't have to see the the mom die at the beginning. <laughs> right, but 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 we're we're kids of the seventies and eighties, so we don't we we don't oh, yeah. deal with that stuff. Oh no, I, I watched uh, I watched a horse die in the bog of never ending sadness. I, I can handle anything. Artex, he's he's around for five minutes and he's already dying. Yeah, that's, <laughs> that's rough. We're spoiling all kinds of movies here, but that's fine. We'll, we'll get started uh, with uh, Morricone here in a minute. But you know, watching those scenes, it's because the Triceratops. There is no CGI on that Triceratops, and it is a hundred percent there. And so when I remember seeing the trailers for this, I was a big dinosaur. A fan as a kid and I, w- I was older by the time Jurassic Park came out so I you know my parents were taking me to see like Baby Secret of the Lost Legend I don't oh know if you yeah remember that movie I <laughs> that do. dinosaur was like a guy and a, <laughs> a couple like of a guys sock a... puppet compared to Jurassic Park yeah but I was you could you took what you could get right because there weren't a lot of dinosaur movies seeing that scene when it breathes and Sam um, Neil is leaned up against it and you see his body moving with the with the creature breathing and when that t-rex foot comes down and you can see the rain running off of its foot those things are putting in our mind this is a real animal so the next shot we have a quick shot we don't watch a cgi animal run around for 10 minutes we see the dinosaur break through the gate it's just an understanding that you have to have this marriage of this reality but most movies are almost like they're all animated you know um i enjoy the marvel movies but the the infinity war movie could have been entirely animated and i don't know anybody would have noticed much difference no, and those uh, you mentioned that one particularly. The uh, you know, we, I watched it again here on Disney Plus, and so ninety four to now is what twenty five years. 
25 years from now, Infinity War is not going to look as good. You know what I mean? You can already sort of tell that the video gameness of the final battle when everybody's porting in. It's, uh, it's, it's too much going on. You can really tell that it's, uh, you know, I don't know if they use that Unreal Game Engine in that as well, but it's, it's, it's noticeable that it's not real. And I think that's one of the reasons, in my personal opinion, though, that the first Lord of the Rings trilogy, which we just watched with the kids, actually does hold up well. Yes, they have those CGI shots where, like, there's a little too much CGI, but they do enough that isn't. You know, there's still enough location shots and things like that that the movie still passes muster for the most part. You know what I mean? Like, Oh, yeah. You get those scenes, particularly because I don't mind a bit of unreality if I can see the craftsmanship. I was the thing I was thinking about watching some Harryhausen movies recently. I don't mind the unreality if I can see that people actually crafted it and made it. And yes, people are crafting and making these things in a computer, but there's a difference, you know. There there is, there is. I know totally what you mean. A bit of it might be our ages, but you know, I grew up with Doctor Who and um, Ray Harryhausen, I, I, you know, uh, um, I, I have no problem suspending my disbelief for a paper mache monster. If the, yeah, the, the heart is there and people love what they're doing and there's a fun or good story, that's totally fine for me. I, I agree. So, but a lot of fun. Um, and our, our, uh, our drive-in is showing Field of Dreams and A League of Their Own this weekend. Oh, wow. A League um, of Their Own. That would be awesome. I yeah. Seen that it's a late, it's the yeah, yeah, and I. The thing is, I just showed the kids Field of Dreams a couple weekends ago. Oh yeah, and um, and I, I like both movies. Um, I just I would love them to, to do the the um, I'd love them to do the Black Stallion at the drive-in. Oh yes, I would. Uh, that's that's uh, another beautiful that's one of my movie. Favorites. Yeah. Okay, so we've we've <laughs> we've covered the drive-in pretty perfectly. Um, Dave, I'm going to kind of let you lead in if you want. Um, about Morricone, and if you want to uh, talk anything specifically uh, about his passing, he was older. You know, he did. He had the IMDb here shows us that he was making or contributing musical pieces to to scores and to movies. He still got twenty twenty credits. You know, here, so he was a busy guy. Oh yeah, yeah. Um, so yeah, Ennio Morricone. He was born in nineteen twenty eight, and like like we were saying, just passed last week. So twenty twenty. Um, oh, that's that's 92 years, eh? I thought he was 91, but anyways. He was an, an Italian composer. He actually started playing the trumpet as a child, a very young child, and um, started composing actual composite, like musical compositions, his parents say, when he was six. And he was enrolled in the uh, uh, Rome's Conservatory of Music at a very young 12 years old. So he um, he's he's pushed into, not not pushed into, he's obviously shown talent in it and his um his teachers at the conservatory encourage him into composing and he plays the trumpet less although to make money as a as a young person his father was in a band also as a as a trumpet player and when his father couldn't play he would substitute so that they would always have income which is kind of neat yeah so you you know you talk about his imdb he uh, <laughs> he has 519 credits under composing and it starts way back in uh, 1960 with a movie called death of a friend he's uncredited on that and then you know uh, you could get a blister scrolling through his imdb on oh no kidding and you get to one of his more famous a fistful of dollars in 1964 but it's multiple movies a year like you know six to eight movies every year 64 65 66 uh and and you know big movies like 
for a few dollars more. The Battle of Algiers, The Good, The Bad, and The Ugly, Death Rides a Horse. I didn't know he did the soundtrack to Danger Diabolique. I didn't know that either until I was looking, yeah. It's, yeah, I, I mean, how how could you keep five, how would he even keep 513 or 19 credits, you know? You would forget more movies than you remember that you made. Well, and the one thing about the IMDb, and you and I were speaking about this before we went uh, we went on here, is that of those 500 credits, some of them really are. As I was scrolling through, it's like not every single one of them is necessarily a unique score. Although these ones you're talking about in the 60s, they were. But oh, his yeah. work is so well-known, it is so iconic that, yeah, every time a TV show decides to use a chunk of the good, the bad, and the ugly, or something like that, you know... Morricone's getting credit for it and but but I mean that's not a slight that's to say that his some of his stuff was so iconic that people are using it because you will know this piece of music there was a cool Times article I think this week that um, they got Alexander Desplat and Danny Elfman to talk about Morricone and they made a good point they said that like he basically created you know he was kind of creating genres of music in a sense you know that uh, particularly if you think about the western you know obviously we think of the western but they were talking about how i um, can't remember what was elfman or was the splat that were saying there's a clear sort of demarcation line right there's uh there's only a couple that had scores that you would really remember they mentioned like rio bravo and you know uh bernstein score for the magnificent seven right but he said basically every other score for a western he just kind of erased it when he came on to the scene particularly obviously with the spaghetti westerns absolutely they're they're some of the most iconic original and you know uh new like groundbreaking soundtracks uh for the 60s like if you yeah you, you mentioned rio bravo which is a john wayne movie uh, actually one of my favorite westerns but yeah like you would never say oh yeah the music in those john wayne movies i that's one of the things i remember no it's it's definitely not the uh the the one of the ways especially with the western so you you know you're right that with his career being so long he didn't only work in westerns but to be fair his work in the westerns is what most mainstream moviegoers know him for um you know we we watch a lot of horror movies in this uh, the like i you know we, if you're into horror movies you know that he did the thing and 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 uh, there were some of the giallos and stuff but most people remember him for the westerns and they are unforgettable. And they, they you know, um, sorry, here, I, I lost my train of thought on that. Oh, sorry, he, he, you know, he elevates every movie he scores, right? Like they're, and with, with Leone, he had such a, a relationship. They actually went to school together as, as young children. And um, uh, Sergio Leone didn't actually remember that. So when the producer, the producers bring him in, bring in Ennio Maricone on the first time they work together is, is a fistful of dollars, which is the first of his trilogy of, of uh, spaghetti Westerns, Sergio Leone. But the only music that um, Leone had heard by Morricone was, uh, I think it's gunfight at Red Rock, which was a movie he made the year before. Anyways, he hated the soundtrack. He didn't want to hire him. And Leone, I guess, uh, talks to Morricone and, and Morricone pulls out a picture of the two of them as kids in school. And because uh, that jogged his That's memory or so whatever funny. the story goes <laughs> that he, he did let him, you know, score the movie and their, their, you know, both their careers blossom from there. 
So much so that by the time they get to the good, the bad, and the ugly, when he's planning the movie, they get together before the movie has even started filming, and uh, Sergio Leone tells Morricone the story. And then so they, they talk about the characters and the themes, and they develop um, you know interlacing themes and how they're going to have the music kind of be so much a part of this Western. Like the, the, by the time they got to that third one, they were just, you know, like, a, like a Hitchcock and, and, uh, and, 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 um, uh, sorry, Bernard Herman. They were just like working so close together, like one, like a unit, you know, you're exactly right. Bernard Herman and Alfred Hitchcock and then John Williams and Steven Spielberg too. Oh yeah. You know? Not that they worked in exactly the same way, but that's kind of thing. I was, I remember doing, uh, back in the podcast, years ago when it first started doing a kind of Spielberg retrospective and talking about the fact that Williams and Spielberg, even though they didn't work together every single time and they don't work together every single time, they both were sort of their identities kind of cross pollinate. Right. And so when something is Spielbergian, part of what makes it Spielbergian is a John Williams soaring score, right? Like not the only kind of score, but we tend to think of those scores. And that's very much a John Williams thing. John Williams music still sounds like that, even when it's not on a Spielberg movie. But then we think of other elements of John Williams, a kind of wonder and kind of that, that childlike sense of grandeur that is a part of his his musical scoring, but it's really what we're taking from the films of Spielberg. And I think that's the same thing here. One of the reasons we think of Westerns uh, primarily is he did score a lot of them, but he also, as you were saying, the word elevation is good. He elevated them, and I think he transformed them into something different. Uh, he his music gave them a character that they didn't previously have. Yeah, and part of that was because he's he's scoring in the sixties and seventies, particularly with a lot of these movies. And so the the kind of what I love about Morricone is the he's got the classical background, like you said. So he has this ability to make a very you know he could make a high vaunted classical beautiful score, but a lot of times he's the sophistication comes with a sense of like. It it feels kind of simple, you know. It's it it doesn't it doesn't try to avoid being melodic or almost easy to hum or easy, you know, a kind of thing that most people say. Well, that's too simple, or a, a classical composer could look down on that and say, you know, the good and the bad and the ugly, the the ecstasy of gold is an example of a composition that if you heard it, it's in your head. Oh yeah, and it's, it's such a that 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 track particularly is is really interesting and and light and. Uh, you know, you, it's called the ecstasy of gold. You can it, it starts playing when uh, is it the, I think the character's Tuco is running in the cemetery, and you can feel that he can feel he's so close to the gold he can taste it. The music is elevating you to you know hit the, the heights of his ecstasy with him. It's it that oh yeah, I changed yeah, my mind. What I said yesterday, no, the good, the bad, and the ugly is my favorite of his soundtracks. Yeah, I think so too. And it's not just because it's probably the most. And the thing is, it's it's not. It's probably the most well known or one of the most well known. But it is also it's so evocative of the film that it's a part of. I can't hear those like you know those kind of screeching chords that he has without seeing Eli Wallach's sweaty face in freeze frame. And that's in, and that was intentional in the film. But I l- let my kids listen to listen to it just listen to it and they were getting into it and they were trying to imagine like what's going on and then i showed them the opening you know that that opening scene which is not so much a scene but it's the credits you know the credit sequence that it plays over 
and it's interesting to you know they're watching it and um and I had to remember that that movie is rated R <laughs> so I didn't we didn't watch the entire the good the bad and the ugly but we watched the opening credit scene that the music plays over you didn't have an extra 3 hours to spare no no well my my kids will sit through I was impressed my son one of his favorite movies uh, we've watched it twice now, is 2001 A Space Odyssey. Oh. He has to watch it the second time. Wow. Yeah, I don't know what I've done to my kids. He's eight. <laughs> so, but I have some theories on that, but I'll hold it because we do have one, an episode about that coming up. But um, Morricone, his, it was, it, it doesn't surprise me that they sat down and talked about the story and truly tried to understand it before he crafted the music because it feels like they do go hand in hand. That one wasn't created without the other in mind you know and and what would that movie be without his score i think that's something a lot of these movies wouldn't be as good without their scores but i really like jurassic park has beautiful music but the way spielberg shoots those scenes and has those those dinosaurs that are so impressive that movie still would have been impressive with a less memorable score but i can't imagine the good the bad and the ugly without that score no i, I know exactly what you're talking about it it yeah, like we, you know, pick, think of, I, I actually off the top of my head, I can't think of a, a very plain uh, Western soundtrack, but like something that might have played over Silverado or, you know, even the music from Eastwood's movie, Unforgiven, which is an amazing movie, uh, that music wouldn't work in this movie, you know? It, it's Western music, but it's not the right music for this. And I think that's one of the things that's so impressive. You have that it's classically styled. There's a lot going on in it, but it is also simple enough that it captures the emotion, and it it it, it doesn't it didn't back away from these big melodies. Uh, let's uh, let's talk about some of our favorite scores or some of the ones that beyond this one, sure, and beyond the westerns. Are there any that stand out to you, Dave? Yeah, I actually, I, I uh, like I said, I do like. Obviously, I like that one. I also um, like the score to one of his giallos, uh, the Black Belly of the Tarantula. I'm pretty sure that's 1971. That's that's a really interesting one too. There's tracks that are, you know, today you would almost call them uh, ambient music, or uh, some of the tracks are definitely, you know, European, uh, late 60s, early 70s that idea of that European love scene, you know, they're very light and, and Leon used vocals as instruments a lot. You know, you get the, 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 ah, or the la la la's or the, you know, he would use the voice, not actually saying something to say something in his music. And that soundtrack, I, I, I think of it as a really, sometimes a really uh, sexy and, um, happy soundtrack but at the same time it's creepy there's tracks where it's just just noises and he's he's kind of scratching on the guitar string and there's a cat in the background and it it's definitely a horror movie soundtrack but then it switches to a, a again a very very european uh i don't know uh, avant-garde uh you know i'm smoking on a patio and the, yeah that one and and uh it's called le professionnel the professional and um that's like a oh the Luc Besson movie yeah right? uh, oh no no sorry <laughs> that's that's too new this is a seventies one also it stars Jean Paul Belmondo I don't know if you know that actor oh that movie okay yes I'm familiar yeah. with that one too yeah because so, Leon is or Leon is really the name of the uh, Luc Besson movie in, yes in France uh, it, and it's got uh, that that soundtrack has 
uh, Chai Mei, and I think Tarantino used that in one of the Kill Bill movies. He did. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. So those two, those those are those are two of the uh, more rare ones, and um, I was I, just to go back to his IMDb for a sec. It's not one of my favorites, but it's one that I didn't even remember that he did. Uh, that's the Untouchables, which uh, the theme to the Untouchables in that movie is amazing. But the the that yes, he did the soundtrack at all, I had totally forgotten. And the, yeah, that that was the De Palma movie. Um, yeah, it's I I like the movie. I do think it's a little. Uh, I think what I like about it is I like all of its pieces more than I like its cohesiveness together. You know, I feel like that's a case where the parts are greater than the the, the final product. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. It's uh. It's yeah. It's a really good clip movie it's got a lot of great scenes in it connery's really good in it yeah and the, the score is great but um he also worked on although there's different pieces of the the, the movie he didn't do every piece of music for it, but the days of heaven terrence malick's days of heaven i really like oh i haven't his seen work that. on that movie um that's a fan that's a fantastic movie and it's one of his his earlier movies and it's another one um uh, he's working with Richard Gere is the actor and that's just a couple other actors. Sam Shepard is also in it. It's an excellent movie and it's very, Malick's a very lyrical filmmaker and putting the two of them together just comes up with some beautiful, beautiful images. And it's not nearly as long, you know, Malick in later years, I, I love his movies, but his movies do tend to be uh, much longer and they're kind of tone poems, but they go on, they can go on for a bit. Days of Heaven is a tone poem, but it is, it's a little bit more structured with story. It's a good place to start if you haven't seen his movies, and that the soundtrack is is excellent. Oh, I'll have to check that out. It's it's amazing. Like if you look at some of the some of the other directors he's worked with, you know, Almodovar, Argento, De Palma, Carpenter, Polanski, Tarantino, Oliver Stone, like yeah, so many of I mean, these directors, and then they and they all, you know, say he's the sweetest, uh, quietest, most gentle soul you know uh, that's that's great nobody has a, uh, as far as i can tell nobody has a bad thing to say about him not unlike his music you know it feels very personable and 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 relatable but there's also a sense of the of the the master the stylist you know uh not in an obsessive way but in a way this guy knows what he's doing he knows what he's looking for and that list of people you just named the one thing that we can say about a lot of those people is for the most part they are distinctive directors right like those are those are people that know what they're looking for and they have their own identity and they're choosing to bring him in yeah an an auteur looking for another auteur you know With Tarantino, this is Tarantino, you know, Tarantino's coming to it, let's be honest, as Tarantino comes to a lot of things, which is fine, as a fanboy, you know, he's coming, the the ability to work with Morricone is because he's heard all these amazing scores, right, that he's had exposure to all these things, and uh, so that's that's cool, and I really liked, uh, to be honest, for me, The Hateful Eight was not a movie that I really loved, uh, I thought it had a lot of issues, there were things about it I liked, but I really... I was glad almost that it existed just so we could hear a little, you know, we could get some more Morricone score. And I really like the pieces of music he composed for it. Oh, yeah. I, uh, I actually, I was contemplated picking that one up on vinyl, but it's, uh, it's a pricey one, <laughs> as you could imagine. Yeah, yeah, it is. Um, a couple others. So I'd like to stop and talk, though, specifically about his score for John Carpenter's The Thing. Oh, good, good. Because that's a score that's a film that you know we were talking about that score versus film 
that movie can can work without the score, but it doesn't work as well without the score. I that's another movie where the I and I, the thing score is not a score that I would recognize probably if you play I would after a few bars, but it's not instantly I'm walking through the uh, record store and I hear that on the you know it might be a few minutes before I recognize it. Yeah. I'm going to recognize Ecstasy of Gold right off the bat. I'm going to recognize The Untouchables. I'm going to hear, I'm going to recognize a horror film. It might take me a minute or two to determine which one it is. But I think that's kind of its strength within the movie. And it goes back to what you said about the Black Belly of the Tarantula, where he did that kind of discordant sort of, this isn't exactly music, but it is atmosphere. Yes. Actually, what I mentioned ambient music before, that's a score that is, you know, uh, the the proto-ambient experience like it's all yeah it, you put it exactly right it's almost not music it, it is just atmosphere for that movie uh, the thing i wanted to bring up because he, there was a bit of a misunderstanding between um Ennio and john carpenter uh john carpenter another great director one of my favorites and a big fan of morricone he wanted to work with him and and as you know he john carpenter was more than able to to create the score to his own movies but he really admired Morricone and wanted to work with him, so hired him. And uh, you know, it's, it's they didn't have the relationship that he had with uh, Sergio Leone, so they didn't get together before production began. Anyways, he produces the soundtrack, and uh, Carpenter then goes and records some of his own music for the movie. And not exactly explaining that to Morricone, he's a bit offended, thinking, well, what what did you hire me for? When Carpenter says, well, I love your music. I I played some of your music at my wedding. I I just wanted to work with you. But some of those tracks weren't right, and I recorded my own stuff. Sorry. (laughs) So, you know, uh, once it was explained to him why he was recording some of his own music for it, uh, Morricone had no problem with it, and he was quite honored to be, you know, involved in Carpenter's wedding that way. That's interesting because when you listen to that, it's not like Carpenter's stuff is completely different. No, and and I think that's kind of what he was trying to explain to him because what what Carpenter actually recorded is almost just sounds. They weren't even tracks. Um, That's a vinyl I don't own, so I can't pull that out to take a look. I don't know if it's listed that way on the album, but um, Morricone did most of what is the music to that. John Carpenter just added or tweaked to make himself happy you know what i mean yeah and it's so there's nothing in that that film that comes off and it's like oh this is completely different i love it because of how much it melds itself to the film you know you can't yes the thing could exist without it but it's such a part of the dna of the film that it doesn't matter that i might not sit and listen to the thing soundtrack for hours you know what i mean plenty of morcone scores i will listen to that way that isn't necessarily one of them uh, a score i want to talk about probably very briefly because it i don't know how much if you've if you've even heard it at all and it, it's uh, and i don't know how many times this happened to him i know it happened specifically because i remember when it was um going on there's a movie that vincent ward did in 1998 called what dreams may come have you seen it with I... robin williams I, I, I'm i almost positive that I saw that when it came out, but not enough that I would want to speak on it. It was a fantasy film. It was based off of a Richard Matheson novel. Annabella Sciorra was in it. Uh, Max von Sydow was in it as well. I think Cuba Gooding Jr. was in it. It's actually a pretty interesting movie. Vincent Ward had made a couple of... Uh, he, he's in um, 
a New Zealand director that had done a couple of different movies. Uh, he had done The Navigator, uh, which was a kind of very interesting, not not Flight of the Navigator, but The Navigator, uh, Medieval Odyssey is the name of the movie. It's pretty interesting. It's a bunch of uh, medieval monks to escape the Black Death, burrow down into a hole and come up in modern day uh, New Zealand. It's it's pretty cool, but um, it's an interesting movie. He did a new movie called The Map of the Human Heart that had uh, Jason Scott Lee in it, who later was in, I think, The Jungle Book, that 94 Jungle Book movie. He had done some kind of visionary movies, and then he was given this one. And in the film, uh, the, the plot involves Robin Williams going to both heaven and hell uh, to search for his wife who has passed on too. So the story kind of begins in the real world or the the world of the living and then it expands into these dreamscapes and the main dreamscape that is probably burned in anyone's brain if they remember the movie at all is that he goes to a world that looks like the paintings the oil paintings that his wife used to make and this world is just dripping with oil paint so uh you have rob williams walking around the side of a, a moving oil painting which is a pretty neat special effect that's cool plus with you know the way he has his his instrumentations and his trippy ingenious arrangements i'm sure the actually i'm gonna have to check that soundtrack out now i'll check the movie out too that sounds really cool but the the interesting thing about this is that morcone's score is not the one in the movie oh (laughs) and that's that's kind of a strange deal he did an entire soundtrack i mean this is and it's not like the soundtrack was ever wedded to the film uh, because they did have another score. So there's examples I can think of this. You know, I don't know if you're aware, but like the movie Legend has a whole Jerry Goldsmith score that has uh, the the Ridley Scott film. But when that film was here in, in the States, it had Tangerine Dream. You know, that's the score that everybody heard. But Scott, who is constantly doing this sort of thing, goes back, makes a director's cut that restores the Goldsmith music. And that huh. doesn't happen here. Uh you can get Morcone's score. In fact, I think it's packaged with Red Sonia, which is another movie we can talk about. That score didn't end up in the movie, whether or not he wanted it there. The score that ended up in the film, I'm trying to remember who actually did the score, but they're very different. And it's, I wonder, I'm not quite sure why they didn't go with Morcone's. His is very lyrical. It is very, um, it's very buoyant and it has, a, it has an ethereal sort of feel to it. But I wonder if, the movie is about a, a man who, at first he's in heaven and he's reveling in what the afterlife is like and then he realizes his wife is not there. And his wife may actually be in this version of hell that he has to descend to. So it's kind of an Orpheus story, right? He has to go down and descend and bring her back. And the score that ends up in the movie has a certain grandeur and a certain sort of like transcendence when you get to those things. Where the Morricone score is a lot more lively in the in the human flashbacks when they're they're still on earth and it's a little more mournful so i wonder if they just if it was a actually a thematic thing in a sense you know that the the music seemed to be more mournful and more um not funereal is not the word i'm looking for but it has a kind of wistfulness to it and the other one has a okay this is a grand adventure and i wonder if that's not the difference i do think that his score is the better of the two but I've never seen it with the film. I've only seen it with the uh, um, the actual, uh, uh, you know, the score just itself. But it's on. You can find it on YouTube. It's pretty. It's pretty uh, good. Oh, I was gonna say. I was gonna ask if it was on Spotify. But yeah, YouTube is also a great. Sorry, a great place to find stuff if you can't afford to buy it. 
But I remember when the film was coming out, and I was so excited. Oh, we're going to get this movie, finally. We're going to get you know it done in this way from this director. And on top of that, we get this Morricone score, and it, it didn't, didn't quite pan out that way. So when um, – so you, but you have heard it on YouTube. Is it like – it's not unreleased, is it? Is it like some you – know, or some sort of bootleg that someone released that – So from what I understand, based on comments here or there, it's and, – and if you're looking for it, it has been released. And I think it has actually been packaged with the Red Sonia score. Like I think it's a Morricone collection and it is Red Sonia oh, yeah. and What Dreams May Come. It must uh, be nice was, to work on a production where you have so much money that you can re-record a score after you decided, oh, no, we don't like Ennio Morricone's score. <laughs> it is a great listening album, and I think that that might be, might be one of those cases where maybe it didn't fit the identity they were going for for the film. I haven't seen the movie that many times to be able to look at it and try to make a speculation about does it fit, does it not fit, but it's a beautiful piece of music on its own. Now, how about the Red Sonia score? <laughs> Well, I don't actually remember that. I I, uh, I I knew I was coming on, so I've I, I've got Spotify Premium, and I did listen to a few scores of his that I hadn't heard before, and just you know brushing up. But I didn't come across that one, honestly. I remember the movie sort of fondly. <laughs> yeah, I do too. I don't. It's, it's like to the point. I don't want to go back to it. I, <laughs> yeah, yeah, one I, of those. Yeah, it was one of my wife's favorites, like, growing up. She saw it a lot, and I remember buying her a copy of it, like, probably 10 or 11 years back. And then when we watched it, I remember just being like, oh, my gosh, that scene where Brigitte Nielsen's stunt double is clearly a man doing backflips. <laughs> you know, I mean, it is, it's like a guy in a mullet, and you're like, oh, my gosh, I don't know if I keep watching this. And uh, from what I understand, it was really supposed to be Conan 3. It ended up, you know, different things happened, and so it's not Conan. It's Red Sonja, and, and yes, she was a character. The movie isn't isn't great, but I think if you if you take the movie and you separate it and you think about the musical identities, the thing that is interesting, though, is that the first two movies, the Conan movies, had Basil Polidorus doing, doing his scores, and they're, I mean, I love those scores, too, but they're kind of big and brassy and orchestral, and if you listen to the score that he does for Red Sonja, that Morricone does, it is, it's kind of going back. He, he adjusts it a little bit, and he has almost more like a march element to it. But it kind of goes back to the westerns. You know, you can listen to it and see how he's tweaking the things that worked for some of the Eastwood films. You know, and I think that's what makes that movie kind of cool. Is like the main theme that I don't, I don't remember what they call. He's got a different name. They can't call him Conan, and he's not called either. He's got some other name. They just threw short through Schwarzenegger's way. Um, it's it's some goofy name. I don't remember what it is, but I'm gonna call him Conan anyway. So when Conan when Conan rides in in the beginning, and you get his score, it's the kind of you listen to that and you instantly know. Oh, I know who the I know, you know this isn't. This is not um, Basil Polidor's doing this. This is clearly Morricone, and it has that feel to it. And it's a good... I like it, too, but it kind of divorced from the movie. I don't really think of Red Sonja when I'm listening <laughs> listening to that soundtrack. Hmm. Yeah, I'll have to brush up on that one. How about um, The Mission? So I, I was you know, giving the main theme a listen to, because that's not a movie I'm familiar with. I, I remember it coming out. Uh, I remember my mom and my aunt... You know, really wanting to see that in the theater, but that wasn't my cup of tea as a kid, and I don't think I've ever gotten around to it. But the soundtrack, wow, stunning. Liked it a lot. 
Yeah, that's an interesting thing because, and I, I'm kind of like you. I remember when the movie came out, I was younger, and I remember seeing the poster. At first, I was excited because the poster has De Niro with a sword in his hand, you know, a fencing sword standing in yep. a jungle. I'm like, what could be wrong about this? And then it's a story about missionaries. I actually tend to think it is a good movie. Um, it's a movie that isn't going to necessarily excite an 8 or 9 or 10-year-old unless you really are into, you know, watching missionaries traipse through the jungle. Uh, and there, there, was a lot, there was a distinct lack of sword fighting, I seem to remember. Because I might have only seen snippets of that movie, I knew that piece of music. You know, the main theme yes. is a theme I think most people know. It's very famous, yeah. Yeah, I think it played on coffee commercials in the 90s. Oh, yeah. It's like that, the old Chariots of Fire. It, people know that song, but very few young people have seen the movie. Oh, I, I wanted to bring up the mission, though, because... Uh, so we talked about Hateful Eight earlier, and he got his Oscar finally for The Hateful Eight. But in 87, he was robbed for the mission. And it's one of his, one of two regrets I found of his. He, uh, he really wanted to win that one, and, and he was a little disappointed because, so, uh, I think the movie, how, how does that work for the Oscars? They come out in 86, and you, you win the Oscar in 87 or something like that? Okay, so hit, so the mission came out, uh, and the other, the other movies nominated are Star Trek Four, Hoosiers, Aliens, and Round Midnight. And Herbie Hancock wins the Oscar for Best Original Score. Maury Cohn's contention is that was made up of a lot of pre-existing arrangements. My score was original. What the F? So he felt he was robbed. And, you know, if you look at some of those movies, geez. I, I don't... I, I know Herbie Hancock. I don't know the score to Round Midnight. But... Um, It'd well, and I don't know it that me. well, but I know that Round Midnight was, uh, you know, it was arranged jazz music. Right. And, and, and uh, pre-recorded stuff, too. Not original. Well, I'll say this. Guess who didn't end up on the Pure Moods soundtrack? And that was <laughs> that was not... Herbie Hancock's not on Pure Moods. Oh, jeez. I remember... You remember they, like, uh, Time Life or something would sell those, like, in the 90s that have Pure Moods, and it's, like, 10 ambient soundtracks. Oh, yes, and, yes, yes. And Morricone's score to the mission is on there. And I, rem I remember having that. I'm not ashamed to say that I had that. It had Enya and everything else on it. And the X-Files theme music redone. Oh, is, great. Uh, yes. Like, uh, but I don't think I ever saw the mission in the in the uh, the 80s. I didn't really get introduced. I saw the – I mean, I probably walked in the room while my family was watching it or something. But I didn't see it until a friend of mine in college showed it to me. It was one of his favorite movies, and that's when I saw it. I'd always seen the poster, you know, and the video cover box and all that stuff. But, uh, yeah, it's funny how those things stick in your head. Another score – it's not his, but a score that's like that is the um, – that I hear and I'm always like, what is this movie? And it turned out to be the score to uh, Ridley Scott's like 1492, The Conquest of Paradise. Oh, not, yes. Yeah. Not, not really a great movie. And I'm not surprised I didn't remember that the score was to it. But it was one of the scores I'm like, I know this. And, and I, you know, for a long time I probably thought it belonged to like The Hunt for Red October or something. And it turns out that it's – so I think Morricone's probably got a lot of scores like that where they're so um, – indelible but they the movie itself may not be as indelible oh yes i mean yeah like i again I, i'm looking over a couple of the ones i wrote down on the imdb and you know i mentioned the giallo spasmo there's also um a movie frolein doctor which funny enough is also a Susie kendall movie it's totally forgettable you know like but he he never looked down on any of the movies um he, he you know work was work and uh, he treated everybody and every project with total total professional respect. Yeah, and I think he used and you as you can kind of tell, 
he used every movie opportunity as a creative exercise, like as an ability to create something oh, yeah. um, unique. And it wasn't just like, I'm going to come here and I'm going to... I haven't heard many of his scores that I would consider to be, even even in the Dollars trilogy, no no score is a rehash of the one that came before it. No, yeah. And that's, you know, I I personally, I really love John Williams as well, but I can, you know, I can yeah, see Williams when people is a say... a little bit more, right. Yeah, it's repetitive, or or you've used it before. Yeah, I can admit that. But you're totally. Uh, uh, he must have. It must have been such an interesting person to have a conversation with. How he never, you know, never repeated himself musically over oh, geez, the sixties. To know is that 50, sixty years of, of composing? That's insane. Yeah, and I think for the most part, yeah, sure. You have some that are gonna. You can't do that much music and not have a little bit of repetition but i do think yeah like you said it's coming to everything as an opportunity for artistic invention for the most part i think um did you ever see the movie the legend of 1900 no it's a tim roth movie from i want to say it's not is it 97 or 98 it might even be later than that uh and it's a director he's worked with before but it's a fantastic movie. It's this kind of big, epic, almost fable. And as Giuseppe Tornatore did the movie, and uh, Pruitt Taylor Vance was in it, and Tim Roth was the star, the score that Morricone does for it is really strong, too. Clarence Williams III plays Jelly Roll Morton. They have a kind of music standoff on a ship. He's a, is a uh, Tim Roth's character is a orphan that is just found on a ship, and he's raised in the, in the, in the belly of this big like steam tanker. And uh, so I really I would recommend that one. It's a movie I don't hear many people talk about. And uh, I, I really generally like Tim Roth too. He's very good. So he just starred in it, or did you say he directed it as well? No, no. Uh, uh, the director had has done a couple of, of other movies too. Um, probably best known there was a two thousand a movie called Milena, and I think uh, I think that had a Monica Bluchan in it, I believe. Cinema Paradiso is guy. Oh, okay. Oh, oh, yes, of. yes. So if you've seen... So, um, yeah, so he's worked with Morricone a few times. Then. Yep. Because, mm-hmm. yep, sure yeah, Cinema Paradiso, I guess, was the first time they worked together. Yeah, I don't remember the name either, but I know... Yeah, that director comes up a lot in his in Morricone's IMDb. I don't know if you use Spotify, but if, if you do and you type in Morricone, obviously The Good, The Bad, and The Ugly comes up first, but... Uh, Cinema Paradiso is another. That must be another very popular one. It's, it's, it's a very nice soundtrack, yeah. but I have not seen that. It film. is, and oh, it's a great film. And that's another one that has a case where there are two versions, and and the second version of the film has an entire chunk of this person's of this of the main character's life that was you know. It's a film about a kid and and an and a older man and a movie theater and then the the other version has a whole love story that never played out you know so it's um and i would i highly recommend cinema paradiso it's a, although i think i actually prefer the version that was ultimately released initially you know that is a case where i think uh they're both worth seeing so are there any others you want to talk about uh, the guy had such an awesome body of 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 work and 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 music and i think has really left an indelible mark on cinema. I mean, if you talk about masters and how long he's been doing this, my entire perspective of films growing up, he was always a bedrock piece of it. You know, I didn't really think about that till this afternoon. I was like, my experience with movies, particularly with you go to like the 
the ecstasy of gold and hearing those scores my entire life like so much of my love of film exists and, and, and incorporates Morricone as a part of it and I don't know you know John Williams is another one I could say that of but there's probably a handful of composers that I can think of that were part of the shaping of my film my film love passion growing up as a kid yeah and uh it's it's kind of you know it's it's the age you're at where some of these guys are are passing away too I think about George Romero passing away a couple of years ago I know he's not a composer but similarly someone who who worked and shaped and was involved in my formative uh years you know and now they're not around anymore yeah so i I don't i don't have too many more soundtracks i wanted to talk about it was it was a couple of people he influenced i wanted to mention and one person that he didn't get to work with that he also regretted i I wanted to bring up that's a interesting little anecdote he um you know he, he he composed the score to many movies that clint eastwood was in as an actor and eventually, uh, Clint Eastwood becomes a director, and not his first movie. I, I'm pretty sure his first movie is Play Misty for me that he directed, which is... I think that's right, yeah. Yeah, so I think I think a lot of that is jazz. I haven't seen that since I was a kid, but, um, you know, Clint Eastwood eventually directs a Western, and who does he uh, call when he wants to come up with a soundtrack? Morricone. Uh, this I don't quite get. I would I would be interested to know if there's more story to it, but... Uh, Ennio Morricone said no to him, and he says he did that out of respect to Sergio Leone. He thought it wouldn't be right to uh, to start composing music for Eastwood. I, I'm not sure I quite get that, but he does say that he re- really regretted doing that later because uh, Eastwood didn't ask again. That's it, yeah. Well, that's that's interesting. Um, although you know, I wonder. I wonder. I kind of I kind of get it, and I wonder if in the end it maybe. See, Morricone, I think, is such a strong composer, and 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 Clint Eastwood, great director too. Uh, I, I'm sure they would have probably come up with something great, but I wonder if it isn't better in a way that he didn't. You know, uh, like you said, it's not that Unforgiven. The soundtrack pops into my head immediately as I think about it, but I do think that that movie was so much of a commentary, kind of on Eastwood's previous experiences in the westerns and it's a it's it's not it's not revisionist as a history but it is a different take it kind of delves deeper into these characters although i think a a misconception about the the italian uh westerns which is it's hard to maintain if you actually watch them is that they were just all uh colorful violence and action without any kind of in-depth understanding of the violence on screen i don't think that's true at all of those particularly Leone's Western movies, no, they understood exactly what they were doing with the violence and with these kinds of anti-heroes and things like that. But I wonder if it would have been less of a commentary or it would have been less singular had Morcone's score been on there, you know? Uh, would it have started to feel more like homage and less like its own distinct thing? Yeah, that's possible. Because I think demystify, maybe that's what I'm getting at, that he seems to be trying to demystify the myth, the Western mythos in a movie like Unforgiven. And I think it's hard to get beyond the fact that Morricone's scores are all about kind of mythic and grand for the most part. Clint Eastwood's directing style is a bit different. It's, you know, he's definitely very American and he's telling 
uh, more straight stories with his westerns than than uh, than certainly Sergio yeah, he's Leone. He's a little was. more naturalistic, a little more understated. Yeah, I think he likes to keep his, particularly in a movie like Unforgiven, up until the end, he keeps it very much grounded in the here and now. There's a sense of of melancholy and 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 a laconic nature to it. I mean, I'm sure the score would have been fantastic. But I, in a, in a sense, I wonder if that wouldn't have overshadowed some of the other things that Eastwood was doing. But yeah, it, that is kind of a... I never really thought about that, but that kind of is a missed opportunity, isn't it? That they never got to work together in that, that capacity. Yeah. And, oh, uh, so I also wanted to mention um, the... I, I'm sure you know the composer Hans Zimmer. Yeah, yeah. yeah I didn't realize, because uh, their styles are not at all the same. Uh, he's... Uh, uh, he says Morricone was a major influence in him becoming a film composer. And I get that. I, I wonder how many people were influenced in that way because, again, it's he's making it look sexy, for one thing. You know, <laughs> His music does get to be the star of some of these movies. You, you have little kids, right? Yeah. I'm sure they know... Oh yeah, that's that's showdown time. Like yes. they've never heard the title "Good, the Bad, and the Ugly," but they know those five notes and what that means is coming. Yep, yep, and that is so. That's so cool. I, I can imagine like you really get to see the composers not just one little more one piece laid onto the film, but it really has a uh, creative place in it. And you don't think you can hear his scores without thinking about that. So I mean, it's just so cool. I'm gonna say he influenced the. People outside of film as well. Um, yo, uh, the artist Yo-Yo Ma, he recorded a whole album of Ennio Morricone's music. Which is great. I love it. Oh, I haven't actually heard that, but I was going to Spotify it. And an artist yeah. I do know uh, quite well. I, I love this guy, uh, John Zorn. He's uh, an experimental jazz composer. I don't know if you know him. Yes, I do. In fact, when you were talking a few minutes ago about the ambient, I was thinking of Yo-Yo Ma and Zorn. And uh, a guy, Ry Cooter, does a lot of music that also feels like it's sprung off of kind of what Morricone was doing in some of those earlier movies. So I'm not surprised that those guys are, you know, inspired by well, him. Well, yeah, so Zorn, you know, he, he was inspired to compose by him. And uh, also, like Yo-Yo Ma, recorded a whole album of Morricone's music. He released it as The Big Gun Down. I don't think I've actually heard that. I no, I hadn't either. And I actually own a few Zorn albums. I didn't know that. And there, there's a band, so I, I play these guys a lot on my radio show, they do what's called faux soundtracks. It's getting a little popular now. Uh, Morricone Youth from New York. Oh, really? No, I haven't heard of them. Well, they're they're uh, they're young, and they like I said, they do um, soundtracks to movies that already exist. They're like uh, inspired by, you know, it's it's getting popular uh, as a thing. But yeah, so I saw them here in Toronto. They opened up for Fabio Frizi a couple years ago. It was the the Frizi to Fulci tour. Uh, a friend of mine got me tickets for my birthday. It was it was a oh, that's but so uh, they they you know they they love him so much that they uh, named their band after him. So I, I always thought that was cool. I guess we should mention just a few uh, before we go though. Some of Argento's scores though, like the bird with the crystal plumage, right, is a Morricone score and a really good one. I think it it is an excellent score. And I if I'm I'm almost positive he did the first three Argento movies. Did he do? The, all, the, all three animal movies, The Bird with the Crystal Plumage, Cat and Nine Tales, I know for sure. Then yes. Four Flies on Grey Velvet? He probably he probably did. I You are you are far more um, steeped in the giallo than I am. <laughs> I don't, I mean, I know, I've seen most of these movies, but I I'll take, I will gladly take your word for it because you're probably... I, I'm, I'm going uh, right. to lay it on the line and say that that's a fact. 
<laughs> and of course, uh, I mean, no one's talking about this one, but Exorcist Two. He did the score. Yeah, for I, I wrote that down. I wasn't going to bring it up. I was. Uh, I, I I should probably give the movie and the soundtrack a second chance. I haven't seen it since I was a kid, and then I I just you know I see all the hype and and the the pooping of it or the pooping on it. So yeah, I've never it's gone back to bad. it. <laughs> I mean. It, Here's what I do. with I just type Exorcist 2 into either Spotify or YouTube and listen to the music and forget about the movie. It's not a bad piece of music. And, of course, he worked with De Palma a few times. We talked about The Untouchables. But he worked with him again in a movie that, again, I would argue is not a necessarily a great movie. But I think a pretty strong score was uh, Mission to Mars. Yes. And there were two Mars movies at the same time. There was Red Planet and this one. And I'll be perfectly honest with you. I probably, in my mind construing the two together a little bit yeah it's possible um, back in the day they used to always release two right there's volcano and uh what was the other one dante's, dante's peak, peak and then and, uh, yeah, armageddon and then and uh, and <laughs> yeah, yeah deep impact yep yep it was that was a big thing there for a bit you would always have like the two movies and you have the monster movies you had like the relic and the mimic and so on and so forth oh speaking but, of um, something like that there was jaws and orca which he also did the soundtrack to oh did he that's that's right and we were talking about jaws i'm glad that we didn't let that one that one slipped by. The thing I do remember about Mission to Mars, and again, with the distinctiveness, I can't remember anything much about this movie, but I do remember there's a scene, that classic scene that always happens in these sort of, because it's a it's a space uh, exploration movie where they're trying to go out to Mars. There's some kind of signal that's been found. I think I want to say that Tim Robbins is in the movie. There's other actors as well, and there's a point when Gary Sinise, I think, is in it, and they are out in space, and you've got that classic scene, right, where the cord just doesn't stretch far enough, and one oh, person's yeah. about to float off into the into the cosmos if they don't uh, it's that it's that version of the ice uh, of the mountain climbers on an ice mountain kind of deal where if i cut my rope then i let the rest of you don't have to make the choice it was a scene that was kind of like that and i just remember suddenly in the midst of the scene you come in with some really like crazy organ music like you know vincent price is just blasting off on the pipes somewhere uh it's got that almost gothic horror kind of sound to it and it was one of those things that suddenly you're like wow what who's doing the music to this because this is very this is not a choice i would have made but that's the only thing i remember about that movie well i I, you've got me curious now because like you know you look at his imdb that sci-fi is the one genre that i isn't underrepresented so yeah i would be very interested to see what his take on a, a science fiction movie would be and I kind of want to even go back and see that because my memory of the movie, to the extent that it is, is that while it wasn't necessarily a great movie, De Palma is an interesting director most almost all the time, even when he's making train wrecks. But I do, I, I feel like there's probably good stuff in that movie. Some of these movies are not holding up so well. I, t- I watched uh, Independence Day with my kids over the weekend, and man, uh, it doesn't doesn't hold up so well. The uh, the Will Smith one. Yes, yeah, yeah. yeah I haven't seen that in years. Yeah, it's but it's the script. It's the script. Oh. I like, and I'm. I mean, that honestly, I think is the moment when big budget Hollywood started to merge off. You know, that script is not that far above some of the stuff that ends up on the Sci-Fi Channel. If I'm if I'm being honest, my, my memory of that is it's really long too. That's a that's oh, not a is, short movie, it, is it? Because actually, it, it sort of gets exciting at the end. Is, is my memory of it? Like it once, you know, once. Independence Day starts right. Right. Well, once once they decide they're going to download the computer virus. Oh, <laughs> with their Macintosh. Right. Laptop. Yeah. Well, that's okay. Okay. Yes. 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 This, this is all coming back to me now. The 
the high-tech world of 1994 internet, we just dialed up the alien ship and crashed it with a virus. As a person who owned a Mac in the 90s, that's pretty plausible. (laughs) That's Oh, you know what? Now, this is all coming together. That's a Roland Emmerich movie, right? He loves to destroy the planet, so... All the time, all the time, yes. Um, He doesn't not destroy the planet. (laughs) Very long and and, uh, very anti-human movies. Anti-human? Anti-human movies. Like, uh, like, like no. He's going to kill us all. They're right. Not all of them feel like they were made by people, though, either. (laughs) I like that anti-human. I mean... I, I feel like you've hit on something there for me. I, I he just made one too. I did just uh, HBO now has Midway, and my son wanted to watch it, and I'm like, I don't know, maybe. <laughs> like the Battle of Midway. The Battle of Midway. Oh, I you mean, know, I would like to see that done well, but I feel like he might not be the guy. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> no, no. Uh, well, uh, do you? If unless you have anything else, Dave, I'll, I think we've had a pretty, pretty good discussion. Yeah. Um, no, I, I, I have no more notes. Anyways. <laughs> Perfect, but uh, I, I'm going to try to put some links in the in the show notes to some of his scores, particularly the the What Dreams May Come. I will also uh, link over to the your your website, the Great Fright North. And does your does your radio show have a like a web page or anything like that? The uh, no, the, I wouldn't worry too much about the radio show. If if someone happens to be listening, that's great. But I would. Uh... I'd, I'd appreciate any uh, shout-outs to my podcast. That that would be awesome. Yeah, and do you have a Facebook page for the podcast? Uh, no, but here, let me... I'll, uh, so or Twitter or anything? You, I can be reached on Instagram at Film Love Network. So uh, one, all one word, Film Love Network. And on, on, the, on my Instagram, I'm updating the radio show, the podcast, and I also have the Film Love Network YouTube channel, which I am not updating often, but... Again, you can get any news on Instagram. Perfect. Awesome. Uh, and it was it was a great time. I look forward to having you back. I have a question for you, Dave. Are you a fan of the X-Files? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah well, Old school. I've... I Like, I watched I a fan since, like, episode two when I finally found it. You know, I started just watching that with my kids. And I'm a little selective about the episodes because some of them get a little grisly. But... Mm-hmm. And, and we live here in Baltimore, and so many episodes take place in Baltimore. We watched uh, the one with Eugene Toomes, a squeeze. Oh, yes, where yes. He goes through the vents. Man, those first four seasons are so good. Yeah. I I put, like, a picture of it up and just on Facebook, and people were responding all over the place. And people were contacting me saying, you should do the X-Files. And I'm thinking, man, I, it would be fun to go back and do uh, not necessarily an episode for every uh, – episode but it'd be fun maybe to cover them in seasons i don't know if that's something you'd be up for doing like oh i could talk about that for sure so i think that would be a lot of fun then i definitely um we'll have you back for some other stuff but i definitely would love to have you on for that because i I, actually i'm in my media room right now and i'm looking at the first five seasons on dvd with extras so yeah i could definitely talk about that you know i think my favorite season was season five that was the one the leading up into the movie and it wasn't necessarily that every episode was better but i just i have a i think that's when i really be i watched it a little bit but that's when i became the like weekly watch it breathlessly now this is also where the mythology started to fall apart a little bit but i think because they were leading up to a movie they knew that they had to have a lot of solid like standalones and i think one of my all-time favorites is that episode uh it's the black and white episode. Is it the postmodern <gasps> Prometheus? Yes, with the share music. Yes, yeah. that's a great one. That is, yeah, that's what it's called, Pro- postmodern Prometheus. I just watched that like six months ago. 
it, it to me occupies the same space in my brain as Young Frankenstein. I just love it so much, and I think it's a, a masterpiece. But there's a lot of great episodes. William Gibson wrote a couple episodes that season. Uh, Stephen King did an episode. I didn't know that. Yeah, the one with the jo- the doll, the little, I think it's called Chinga or something. It's a little uh, porcelain doll. Huh. But um, a, lot, a lot of good stuff uh, on all those seasons. You're right, the first five are great stuff. There's good stuff later on, but the story starts to... I love Millennium too. Uh, with uh, I, I Lance never Henriksen. got to see. Like, I know the show, but uh, yeah, it never. It's darker. It's a lot more unrelenting, and it doesn't have the same kind of Lance Henriksen and Terry O'Quinn glowering as the world ends. Doesn't quite have that same uplift that you get from Mulder and Scully from time to time. Right. So yeah. It's a, it's a dark show without a lot of that humor added in, but it's still it's still definitely worth seeing. Anyway, uh, that's all I have. And Dave, thank you so much uh, for joining us. And we will be back uh, again soon. Uh, Until next time, this is the Phantom Galaxy signing out. Take care. Bye. been enjoying the music here on Phantom Galaxy, the opening theme and the closing theme are both brought to you by synth pop artist Aries Beats. He's done a lot of really cool stuff in the world of synth pop, a lot of very interesting genre-based retro themes. You can find more of his work over at ariesbeats.bandcamp.com. And until next time, we are the Phantom Galaxy. Mm-hmm.